Good morning, beloved. Welcome back. Good showing for our first day back in Sunday school. We're going to launch this morning our study on the theology and application of prayer from um, Luke 11. Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. Is there, is there an echo in here? Can we work on the sound a little bit while we're doing this? Okay, thank you. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time in this text. I will reference it because I'm going to do more of an introduction this morning on the theology, the biblical theology of prayer. But let's begin in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever He needs. And I will tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Father, we thank You for the gracious gift of prayer. Help us um, to learn more about it and how we are and have been enabled um, to approach You and, and to even call You Father. So help us today in the coming weeks, um, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, your Son, would increase our prayer life, we pray in his name. Amen. And prayer, we talk about prayer. Um, normally, it's a topic when it's taught about or preached about um, that often causes um, believers um, to, to begin to squirm a little bit. Um, guilty feelings, for some reason, stir up. Usually the reason is because we all know that we don't pray enough. You know, if you don't spend one to two hours a day in prayer, um, you kind of bow your head and, in shame. Um, but as we know, Scripture is filled with uh, exhortations uh, to pray. James 5, we read that the effect of fervent prayer of a righteous man um, avails much. And if it avails much, if it gains or benefits us, Um, why don't we do it more? We're encouraged in the Scriptures to pray unceasingly, persistently, passionately, to pray faithfully, um, 
but yet it's the, often the greatest challenge um, that we face. You find prayer to be a challenge in your life? Probably so. Because it's always met with opposition. It's always met uh, with many um, distractions. And it's always something that seems to be lacking um, among God's people. It's a hard thing to do. Um, John Stott, he's with the Lord now, he was once asked, um, what is the greatest struggle in the Christian life to which he answered without blinking an eye? Prayer, he said. It always seems uh, uh, to to be that way. Um, In 1989, um, a guy named James Houston wrote a book on prayer. He says, why write another book on prayer? His answer, well, the answer is simple, because a lack of prayer is so characteristic of today's world. J.C. Ryle, in the 19th century, he said, and I quote, I've come to the conclusion that a great majority of professing Christians do not pray at all. Way back in the 3rd century, uh, a group of men known as the Desert Fathers actually withdrew to the wilderness to seek the face of God in prayer because of growing worldliness in the church. And as many of us find it um, challenging to pray in a a persistent, consistent way, um, this study is in no way intended um, to beat you over the head and charge you to, to pray more. Because it's not, God, it's not God's intent either. So that, that is not um, what this is about. But he does want us to, to take hold of, of the key to prayer. The key to prayer, which, which we'll see something of, I hope, this morning. Um, especially when it's the last thing that we feel like doing. Now, there's two books I've added to my library on the subject of prayer over the last year. Um, The first is um, Calling on the Name of the Lord, Calling on the Name of the Lord by Gary Miller from the uh, New Studies in Biblical Theology series uh, by InterVarsity Press. If you're interested, I will be gleaning much from this. Uh, The second um, is Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. Um, this was given to me actually by my friend Shoddy by Crossway Publishers um, if you're interested. So it'll be these two books, one on the theology of prayer. This is on the application of prayer. I'm not going to get to the application of prayer for a few weeks, but those are the two um, resources that I'll be gleaning from. Um, Whitney in his book, Um, outlines um, an easy method um, to grasp regarding the application of prayer, and that is praying the scriptures, specifically, most specifically praying um, through the Psalms. And I've actually, uh, I've started doing this about, whenever I received the book, eight, nine months ago, um, started um, to apply that to my own um, prayers. It's great, very, very helpful. And he says that it's an approach that revives for some the problems with what he calls um, the boredom of prayer. Prayer can become boring to some of us. And then conquering 
um, the, the off-repeated frustration most of us probably deal with when we pray, and that is this. We say the same old things about the same old things the same old way. The problem, Whitney says, is not that we pray about the same old things. Rather, it's the way we say the same old things about the same old things. The problem, then, is one of method. So, with Whitney's application for prayer, um, as I said, we'll get to, um, and I really, as I looked at both of these resources, said, well, they really go hand in hand, um, at least um, for a study in, in this kind of setting. I thought that they would work well together. But this morning I want to consider um, Miller's work. I'm calling on the name of the Lord. Um, His thesis um, is greatly shaped by a very powerful quote from John Calvin. You ever heard of that name before? That's good. From his Institutes of the Christian Religion, um, something um, of which every Christian ought to have in his or her library, um, Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. Um, Miller quotes Calvin um, several times in the book, this one particular quote that says, quote, Just as faith is born from the gospel, so through the gospel our hearts are trained to call upon God's name. That is, God's promised and provided solution to the problem of human rebellion against him, and its consequences, the gospel. Just as faith is born from the gospel, so through the gospel, our hearts are trained to call upon God's name. The core of the gospel is that we have nothing. Amen? We contribute nothing. We bring nothing to God. Nothing at all. Well, we bring our sin to God. That's the only thing we contribute. Regarding salvation. That is it. We're rescued by grace alone, through faith alone. So it it should come as no shock to us that um, prayer is made possible also by way of the gospel. It works exactly the same way. That's the argument. Okay? So, the gospel tells us that it's God who gives to us. He gives everything. We contribute nothing. Therefore, the point, we need to ask. Regarding prayer, we need to be those who ask. We just read. Jesus said, come, ask, seek, knock. So taking hold um, of the, the, the key of prayer um, is that prayer in the Bible is intimately linked um, to the gospel. We talk back to God by asking. That's, that's the point. That's the main thesis of, of his work. We uh, ask for understanding. I mean, how many of you do not go before the Lord and ask for understanding of, of what he has done for us? Help us to understand more of what you have done for us. Help us to live in the light of what you have done for us. Help us to take hold of what you have done for us. And help us to rightly represent you to people as regards what you have done for us. Those are probably common prayers for any Christian, I would think. So Miller's point, building upon Kelvin's, is not to focus on prayer. The focus is not prayer. It's not trying to learn new techniques. 
It's not trying to learn new contemplative methods. You've, you've heard of those books. Contemplated, math, contemplated methods. But it's to take the key of prayer, which is the gospel. That's the key. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Focusing on God and what he has done. When we do that, then we learn how to pray. Okay? That's what we're after. So Miller says, getting hung up on prayer itself is like driving your car staring at the windshield. That's very dangerous, right? You you run into stuff. So you don't drive your car staring at the windshield. We need the windshield there to, to be able to see what's out there. But the windshield's not the focus. We don't stare at it. So, in other words... Prayer, he says, isn't what we're aiming for. We're aiming for the Lord. The Lord is the locus of focus. So the the key, again, is the gospel. Uh, The message that the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done something to make it possible for us to share in and, and delight in with them. That is Trinitarian love. We're invited into that relationship by way of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So the first thing we want to look at this morning is why prayer is so difficult, why it's so challenging. That's the first thing. And number two, um, what is it that God has done to make prayer possible? All right, that, that will be our, our introduction to prayer. So if you, if you struggle with prayer, take heart. You're not alone. Okay? I know you read about the great Puritans who, at their bedside, there were, you know, little dents in the floor from their knees. And you read all those great stories and you feel guilty. Take heart. The reason that that prayer is so difficult, now we understand this, but he really drives this home. It's simple. We live in a fallen world. Prayer is actually designed for a fallen world. Amen? Now, today, uh, you know, talk about distractions. Distractions regarding prayer are, are different than they were, say, 10 years ago. What's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning, probably? Most people today, they probably grab their iPhone. Right? Most. That's why it's not good to keep it next to your bed. Because the first thing that you'll be tempted to do is to, to, to take hold of that distraction rather than to pray. Nevertheless, prayer's always been a challenge. There's always going to be distractions. And some of the reasons it's so hard, these are just some thoughts as I've been looking at this, And again, building upon um, Miller's thesis, um, life for us is, relatively speaking, easy. How many of us pray for our daily bread being hungry? Okay, I I mean really hungry. Praying for our daily bread. It's easy. We're not hunkering down for, 
in our basements, or well, we don't have basements here, or hunkering down um, in, in the midst of a war-torn environment. If you were, you'd be driven to pray because you'd be desperate, desperate. You know, we don't come into church this morning with the fear of people hiding in the bushes ready to take our head off. So we're not that desperate. One of the things in learning how to pray from another Miller Miller in another book is learning how to be desperate. Growing to learn how to be desperate before the living God. So as we pray, we're continually learning. We're having to relearn uh, how to grow to pray um, in a fallen world. So this hopefully will be helpful to us over the coming weeks. Uh, We're flawed people who live in a flawed world, amen? Therefore, we have prayer. Perfect. Perfect candidate. A fallen creature living in a falling world. Okay, so let's think about this. Before the fall, okay, prior to our first parents' rebellion against God, um, there was no prayer. Okay, there was no prayer. Um, they enjoyed life with God. Life was very simple. They had a personal, daily, intimate, intimate relationship with the living God. And then we see how everything went wrong. We see a break from that communion. Look at Genesis 3, beginning in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord, the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife, this is after they sinned, right? This is after their radical rebellion. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Okay, now we know God dwelt in the garden. God's dwelling was there, and he fellowshiped with his creatures in the garden of Eden. So whatever God's dwelling was like in Eden, he came into the garden of Eden and had fellowship with his creatures. Notice, he would come out to them. God came out to his people from his Edenic temple environment, whatever that was, And he came into the garden seeking them out. They didn't have to seek for him. He sought for them to have loving communion with them, routinely walking with, talking with, spending time with the people he created and the people that he loves. Holy, rich, pure fellowship. Routinely God comes into the garden seeking them out. And remember, they were given responsibility. Adam was delegated dominion, and he had the the responsibility to extend the garden around the whole world, where as they populated the world, all of God's people would have this intimate fellowship with him. Relationship. Freely enjoying company with their God and their maker until Genesis 3. 
And now, rather than than easily and naturally delighting in God, rather than enjoying the very presence of God, they try here to avoid God. They try to hide from God. Notice, they're ashamed and they're afraid of his footsteps. They hear him coming. This is a regular thing, and they run and hide. And then they try to justify themselves. And all of a sudden, this chasm begins to develop between them and their creator, right here. And eventually, God will expel them from the garden. They're expelled. This is where they once walked with God. This is where they once had fellowship with God. Here now, there is no more intimacy. There is no more immediacy, but only distance in separation. So then there's this massive gulf left between God and all who are born thereafter. So humanity's left at a distance after the fall. No easy access. But again, remember, they didn't have to go looking for God. He came to them. After the rebellion, they attempt to run, they attempt to hide. So why is it so hard to pray? Why is it so difficult to concentrate? Why is it so difficult to say sensible things? And why are we so easily distracted? Right there. Why does it seem sometimes like your prayers bounce off the ceiling? Right here. It's because of the fall. That's the bad news. The good news is that Almighty God did not intend to leave things like that. But he committed himself to opening back up a way to himself. That leads us to our second point. Notice, um, God began right there, right then, he began to announce his pre-planned response, pre-planned, preordained, okay, pre-planned response to Adam and Eve's arrogance and rebellion. Genesis 3.15. We cite that a lot here. You want to know how to read the Bible? You have to know that verse. You have to understand that verse. And there, God promises to provide a descendant of the woman. Seed, singular, of the woman. A Satan-crushing, sin-destroying, relationship-restoring Messiah. So as the Old Testament begins to unfold that promise, there is a considerable amount of time before he shows up. But they don't know that. They don't know that. We know it, this side of the cross, and we're we're seeing something more of it as we study through Mark's gospel. Jesus, the Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The seed promised comes to earth. So meanwhile, meanwhile, here at this point, what is everyone to do until that grand and glorious day? Man is separated from God, 
So how, how do they communicate with God? How, do they, how are they going to relate to him? Turn to Genesis 4. Verse 25. And Adam, Adam's still kicking. Adam knew his wife. They had a physical relationship. They had physical relations again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called on his name. And he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. At that time. At that time. Yahweh. That's the start of prayer in the Bible. Why now? Why does the birth of Enosh trigger the birth of prayer? And again, Adam doesn't know when the seed promise is going to enter the scene. He doesn't know. God doesn't tell him. God's not obligated to tell him. Who then's most likely suspect in their mind for that role? When the seed is promised, who might they be thinking it should be? Well, certainly Abel, their godly son. Their godly son Abel, but, you know, turns out he's not the descendant who's going to sort things out because Cain kills him. So the wait continues. Well, maybe it's Seth. Nope, he's passed over. Perhaps Enosh. Well, by the time Enosh arrives and grows, at that time, we read, people begin to pray. They begin to call out to Yahweh. Perhaps they discerned. Perhaps. We're not told, but perhaps they discern. You know, things may not get straightened out right away. Okay, now remember, Adam lived into his 900s. People were living into their 8 and 900s, okay? So, after this long stretch of time, they're like, yeah. Maybe not right now. Maybe not in our lifetime. So they start to cry out to God. So true prayer, here's the, the argument in the book, true prayer is born out of seeing both God's commitment to us, okay, God's commitment to us, that is his promise expressed in the gospel on one hand, and our sense of need on the other. So prayer is born out of both of seeing both God's commitment to us, his promise expressed in the gospel on one hand, and our sense of need on the other. That's the argument. That's the heart of prayer, amen? That's the heart of prayer. To call on God to, to come through on his promises. That's what prayer is. Or that's what it is biblically. To call on God. To come through on his promises. Jesus said, pray thy kingdom what? Come. God promised. It has come and it's coming. So pray. Let it come. 
we admit our weaknesses, and we appeal to his power, and we appeal to his strength because we have nothing in and of ourselves. So to pray to God in a truly biblical sense is simply to talk back to God. He, he speaks first. He makes the promise. We speak back to him based on his promises. In light of what he says to us, we cry out with a deep sense of our own need. And that's really what the other author, it's another Miller of another book, which I cited, is learning how to be desperate is another key to prayer. Learning that desperate state, crying out with a deep sense of our own need according to God's promises. Biblical prayer. So prayer is made possible first and foremost by God's commitment to us. By God's commitment to us. And we see it way back in Genesis 3, then verse 15. Now Miller proposes that prayer in the Old Testament is nothing less than calling on the name of Yahweh to deliver on his covenantal promises. He, he just draws this out, and he just shows example after example um, throughout the Old Testament. Pondering the prayers of Genesis 4.26, we, we, we must remember that these were pre-flood, pre-Abraham, pre-Moses, pre-Bible times. Genesis 4, when they begin to call on the name of the Lord. Now, as you follow this through the Bible, you follow this through the Old Testament, God's people go on to make the same old mistakes, they go on to sin the same old sins over and over again, choosing to live for themselves rather than living for God. What's our problem? And incredibly... God in his grace, this is what's incredible, we read the Bible, God in his grace keeps on speaking and he keeps on listening. All throughout the Bible. God calls Abraham to himself. Was Abraham seeking God? No. God sought out Abraham. God called Abraham to himself. He speaks to Abraham. He spoke to Isaac. He spoke to Jacob. Who initiates the relationship? Always God. So having spoken to them, he continues to listen to their moans and their groans, their complaints and their requests. God. And then this covenant clan, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, grows in to the covenant nation, Israel. We see the same problems. God continues to speak. People continue to rebel. People continue to cry and moan and groan, and God continues to listen. It's beautiful, isn't it? It'll give you hope. <laughs> we get to the Exodus. The time of the Exodus. God goes so far as to call his people, okay, they've been in bondage for 400 years as he said they would be to Abraham. After the 400 years, he goes after them, he hears their cry, he calls them out, and he refers to Israel as his firstborn son. His son. He speaks to them through his mediator, Moses, 
and continues to listen to their moans and their groans and their complaints for 40 years in the wilderness. Mercy. We move throughout the Old Testament. We see growing tension between the nearness of God. Right, okay, the tabernacle. There's growing tension between the nearness of God, the nearness of God's presence. Remember, the tabernacle was served as two purposes. The safety of the people, right? So there was safety, there was his presence, but it was also very dangerous. Because if you violate God's implemented methods of approaching him, what will, ha- what will happen? You die because he's holy. He sets up residence on the earth. He gives instructions for the building of this tabernacle, the place that symbolically holds his, his presence, if you will, with the people. But in order to approach him, there's a certain method that must be carried out or, or you will be consumed by God's holiness. So how then can this holy God keep speaking and, and actually take pleasure in the, in the mealy-mouthed prayers of people? How? How, 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 can, how can their prayers actually become a sweet-smelling aroma to this holy God? These people who speak out of their mouth, and oftentimes it's far from their heart, from what their heart truly is. How does God delight in the prayers of his people? Well, as we follow through, uh, for, for, God, or for God's people to experience something of that joy and something of, of that understanding, um, it's going to take sacrifice. Sacrifice. So in order for God to hear the prayers of his people, and I'm talking about a covenant-breaking people, for their prayers to rise as a sweet-smelling aroma, it's going to take sacrifice. This is what unfolds in the Bible. Sacrifice. So you get to the book of Leviticus. Okay, We're starting to see in the Old Testament, prayer now is a family affair. It's a family affair. It's between God and his son Israel made possible by way of sacrifice. Not to the other nations. Israel, his firstborn son. Now, this is what we discover in the fullest sense when the seed of the woman shows up. Jesus, the seed of the woman. So not only does prayer depend on God's promises... That is, gospel promises, it also depends on sacrifice. What was the promise in Genesis 3.15? I will put enmity between the woman's seed and your seed, Satan. Okay, he's going to come. When he comes, he's going to crush your head. In the process, his heel will be bruised. Sacrifice. So then, in that marvelous passage of, of Luke 11... Jesus makes it clear, so here the son comes, his one true son, God's true Israel, the true Jew, the true Israelite, the seed of the woman. He comes, he makes it clear, we are to ask, and we are to ask freely as a child would ask their earthly father. 
and calls him dad. Jesus says, ask of your heavenly father. And then he gives this example of, you know, you go and knock on your neighbor's door in the middle of the night for bread because you had an unexpected traveler show up, right? Now, in Jesus' culture in this day, as Jesus is telling the story, everyone would nod their head. Of course you go to your neighbor's in the middle of the night and knock on the door for bread. Of course you do. It's a cultural norm, right? What they would shake their head negatively about would be the guy doesn't get up and do it. Right? It would be unheard of in our day. You'd go to Ralph's or whatever. (laughs) They're open 24 hours. Go to Ralph's. He says, pound, seek, knock. Now, there's a lot in that text. Like I said, said, we only have seven minutes left. We're not going to look at that, but there's a lot there. But Jesus says, he is your father. This prayer thing is a family affair because his number one son came as the sacrifice. He came to lay down his life. He's the fulfillment of all those shadows, of all those types. And prayer was possible in the Old Testament because of the promised one who would come. Prayer is possible for us, even in a fresher, greater way, since he has come. We can enter in boldly, boldly to the throne of grace. And he calls on us, he calls us to share in this intimate relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Beautiful. He says, pray, seek, ask. And notice, when we do pray, he's not going to give us things that are bad for us. Scorpions and serpents. We're very dangerous. They, They still are. Fish and eggs, common part of everyday diet, along with bread. Jesus talks in another portion of Scripture about bread. If you ask your father for a bread, he's not going to give you a stone. He's not going to trick you. If you ask for fish, he's not going to give you a serpent. You're not going to be defiled with something unclean or a scorpion, something dangerous. When you pray, God's not going to give you bad things. If you, ask for, if you pray for stupid things... Let's just talk plainly. If you pray for stupid things or dangerous things, he's not going to give it to you. If it's bad for the kingdom, you're not going to get it. So we grow to learn to know what to pray for. So we listen to God. We pray according to his promises. So prayer is really a family matter now. And notice... In Hebrews, we're told that Jesus is not, he is not ashamed to call us brethren, which means he's our elder brother. That's where we get elder brother from. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. He's our elder brother, and he has made it possible for us to be heard. Therefore, he says, come on and ask, ask, pray. According to my Father's promises, pray, come, seek, knock. Well, I'm not very articulate. Come, seek, pray, knock. I've heard people pray out loud. Come, seek, pray, knock. I can't pray like so-and-so. Come, seek, pray, knock. Right? Galatians. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, 
born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And again, it's all because of promises of God. It goes way back to Genesis 3.15. So as a family, we've been given the right to ask. We've been given the right to ask boldly. And it all depends on a sacrifice being made that was made possible by the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we now have fellowship with the triune God. So a praying life, and again I want to quote Paul Miller, it's a different Miller. A praying life is this. Learned desperation is at the heart of a praying life. End quote. Miller, this is Paul Miller, says this. Jesus doesn't say, come to me all you who have learned to concentrate in prayer, whose minds no longer wander, and I'll give you rest. No, he opens his arms to weary children and says, come to me, you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. The criteria, he says, for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. Your heart could be and often will be askew. That's okay. You have to begin with what's real. End quote. Don't let that hinder you from coming to God in prayer, in other words. You know, one of the byproducts of of Miller's thesis... That is this Miller. Miller with an M-I-L-L-A-R. The other Miller is E-R. Okay, so Gary Miller, uh, one of the great byproducts of his thesis is that it goes a long way toward resolving that the conundrum between um, prayer and God's sovereignty, right? How many times have you heard someone say, why pray if God is sovereign? He's predetermined everything. That's the argument. We pray according to God's promises, we plead for him to come through on that which he's already promised. So that, that's laying out kind of an introduction for the biblical theology of prayer and seeing how the saints throughout time have prayed according to what God promised. And we continue to do the same thing. Having a, a fuller understanding of what he has accomplished in his son, amen? Therefore, we ought to be that much more bold to pray according to the scriptures. Amen?